This is Nick Dodge and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's top lawyer is calling for an end to the GOP investigation into last year's presidential election. At a press conference today, Attorney General Josh Call, who is a Democrat, called for Assembly Speaker Robin Voss and other Republican leaders to, quote, shut this fake investigation down, unquote. That comes after the mayors of five large Wisconsin cities, including Madison, received subpoenas last week to testify in front of the election probe. Today, Call called those subpoenas unlawful. But Assembly Speaker Robin Voss maintains that the subpoenas are legal and that the probe, led by former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, should continue. On Saturday, Gable claimed in a YouTube video that his investigation had found evidence that state election laws were not followed and ballot security measures were undermined. Gableman did not provide specifics. Meanwhile, Representative Janelle Branchen, who chairs the Elections Committee in the State Assembly, says she's being kept in the dark on Gableman's audit. Branchen has attempted to run her own investigation, but her subpoenas went unsigned by Robin Voss. UW-Madison Chancellor Rebecca Blank is stepping away from her position at the end of the school year, the university announced today. In summer 2022, Blank will become the next president of Northwestern University. There, she'll be the first woman president to lead the Evanston, Illinois University. The change comes as the University of Wisconsin system, 13 universities across 26 campuses, also searches for a new leader to replace interim president and former Wisconsin governor, Tommy Thompson. The Kenosha police officer who shot Jacob Blake seven times at close range last summer will not face federal charges, reports the Associated Press. The August 2020 shooting left Blake, who is black, paralyzed from the waist down. It also propelled a backlash of demonstrations, during which two protesters were killed by a vigilante. The U.S. Department of Justice announced last Friday that a team of federal prosecutors could not produce enough evidence that Rustin Shesky used excessive force or violated Jacob Blake's civil rights. Earlier this year, state prosecutors also declined to charge Shesky. In April, Kenosha police announced that Shesky was off of administrative leave and back at work on the Kenosha police force. Speaking of police, a Madison police officer was shot this weekend for the first time in at least two decades. The shooting, which occurred early Sunday morning on State Street, happened while Madison police officers were attempting to detain a suspect. The name of the officer has not been released. They were taken to the hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. And now, here's your daily COVID-19 roundup, courtesy of the state's Department of Health Services. The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at nearly 2,500 cases per day. More than 3.1 million Wisconsinites, or slightly north of 54% of all residents, have completed their vaccination series. Meanwhile, Wisconsin Public Radio reports that demand for COVID-19 testing has increased in recent weeks. Some 20,000 tests have been administered in the past few weeks, and the DHS plans to increase testing capacity in the near future. To facilitate that plan, the DHS will be relaunching a program that will provide free testing supplies and cover testing costs for local departments and other test providers. And now, on to today's top stories. 
On September 30th, SSM Health announced that it would be ending its midwife furry program at St. Mary's Hospital in Madison. On Thursday, after swift community pushback, SSM walked back that plan and announced that the program will continue indefinitely, a decision community members celebrated this weekend. Our producer, Jonah Chester, has the story. As intermittent rain blew through town yesterday, community members gathered to celebrate a decision by SSM administrators to preserve St. Mary's Midwife Program. SSM is the healthcare system that owns St. Mary's Hospital. About three dozen folks gathered outside SSM's offices on Orchard Street before marching half a mile to St. Mary's Outpatient Center on Park Street. Jessica Vaughn, an SSM midwife, says the St. Mary's Midwives negotiated a new deal with the healthcare system on Thursday an agreement that will allow the program to continue indefinitely. They told us, uh, so yes, we are going to reinstate the program. Um, It will not be cut. And uh, we had a really good conversation about that. And I think we can tell with this community, they're not going to allow this program to be over. When it initially announced that the midwifery program would end at the end of this year, SSM cited the program's lack of long-term financial viability. The healthcare system said it would be coordinating with community midwives in the future, a decision that left the four St. Mary's midwives and their estimated 100-plus patients in limbo. State Senator Kelda Royce, a Democrat from Madison, says it's not unusual for hospital-based midwifery programs to face financial issues. Royce, whose three pregnancies were attended by midwives, is the former executive director of NARAL Pro-Choice Wisconsin, a reproductive rights advocacy group. Well, I think one of the problems is that they're not very profitable, and we have a profit-driven healthcare system right now that um, really doesn't put patient care at the center of all the decision-making. Midwifery care tends to mean lower interventions, less costly uh, procedures. Uh, women often you know, don't have the same higher rates of complications. And midwifery care is really best for healthy pregnancies that are low risk. Karis Borsma organized Sunday's event. She says the St. Mary's midwives played an essential role in delivering her child earlier this year. So I had a baby seven months ago and I saw the midwives at SSM for my care. And that was really important to me that I um, had that holistic kind of care that I could stillbirth at a hospital and that I would know who was with me when I gave birth. I wouldn't be uh, just left to whoever was on call. I knew all of the midwives ahead of time. And especially having a baby, first baby during a pandemic, it was really important. So I don't want to see that. I didn't want to see that go away for anyone. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Rhetoric surrounding the 2020 presidential election continues to swirl in Wisconsin, with a GOP-led investigation opponents say is underscored by misinformation. As that effort unfolds, a new research project aims to combat false claims stemming from last year's vote, as well as faulty COVID information. For more, we turn to Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection. How do you fight an onslaught of misinformation surrounding the 2020 election? A University of Wisconsin communications professor says a good place to start is a heavy load of facts delivered through social media ad buys. UW's Mike Wagner is part of a team that was awarded a grant from the National Science Foundation to find effective ways to combat online misinformation. The project involves identifying where falsehoods are proliferating, asking trusted journalists to fact-check those messages, and then countering with purchased social media ads containing verified details. 
Wagner says they hope to get those follow-up messages in the news feeds of people sharing bad info. Our goal is not to change the hearts of the people who are trying to sow chaos. Our goal is to try to find those people who are exposed to that information and show them that there is verifiably accurate information that's different. He says the mission centers around false claims about the integrity of last year's presidential vote, as well as misinformation related to COVID vaccines. It comes on the heels of a GOP-led election audit in Wisconsin that has come under fire as being anti-democratic. Republican leaders maintain it's about ensuring a fair process, but opponents say it will create lasting harm. Wagner says misinformation shared on platforms like Facebook and Twitter about these topics has resulted in a public health threat. He feels it gets in the way of responding to the needs facing the country. It would be much more useful for the maintenance of our country if we were debating our ideas rather than debating, did Joe Biden win the election or do COVID vaccines contain microchips for government monitoring? The team acknowledges the challenges in getting through to audiences who disavow mainstream news sources. Wagner says that's why they're being direct in placing their ads, as opposed to speaking through media that already provide information from reliable sources. Findings from the project are expected next summer. Mike Bowen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. Support for this reporting was provided by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day. The holiday acknowledges the destruction of indigenous land, culture, and people after European explorers discovered North America. It's the third year that Wisconsin has formally recognized the holiday. And today, Governor Evers had another announcement. WORT reporter Ben Kern has more. Indigenous Peoples Day, a remembrance of indigenous history, culture, and a direct acknowledgement of the horrors suffered by indigenous families across the country. It's the third year Wisconsin has celebrated the holiday. In 2019, Wisconsin became the 14th state to recognize Indigenous Peoples Day after Governor Evers signed an executive order to replace Columbus Day with a tradition that celebrates Native Americans rather than European explorers. It was a pleasure and an honor in 2019 to designate the second Monday of October henceforth as Indigenous Peoples Day in our state to recognize the critical importance Native nations play in the state to reaffirm our commitment to upholding tribal sovereignty and to celebrate indigenous cultures. Today, Governor Evers was joined by several tribal leaders to sign a new executive order, this time formally acknowledging and apologizing for Wisconsin's role in Native American boarding schools. Over the past year, we've seen an international awakening to abhorrent injustices that took place in our country in not so distant past. Native kids were taken from their families to attend boarding schools where they were forced to assimilate to white culture and stripped of their cultural identity and traditions. Many experienced horrible living conditions impacting their physical and mental health and their well-being. Evers was joined by several tribal leaders, including Chairman Tahasi Hill of the Oneida Nation and President Shannon Holsey of the Stockbridge Muncie Band of Mohican Indians. Holsey stresses that this holiday signifies the ever-going fight of an entire population against mistreatment. And really today, Indigenous Peoples Day is a day to remember the sovereignty, history, and contributions and resilience of all Indigenous people across the United States. It's also a day 
to, for us to all identify systematic and ongoing issues in Indian country and a call for progress and change. Evers Executive Order Number 136 formally acknowledges and apologizes for Wisconsin's role in Native American boarding schools. It also offers full support to the Department of the Interior's ongoing investigations into these boarding schools. In June, shortly after the discovery of children's remains in a Canadian residential school, U.S. Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland announced such an investigation within the U.S. This initiative aims to identify possible school sites, tribal affiliation demographics of the boarding schools, and even possible burial grounds for Native students across the country. In early September, Canada's Committee of Catholic Bishops apologized for the forced assimilation of nearly 150,000 Indigenous children. This statement came out after the discovery of over 1,000 unmarked graves in boarding school grounds. The Committee of Bishops has since worked with First Nations and other organizations to advocate justice and reconciliation to Indigenous families. Evers says that even Wisconsin was home to some of these mysteries. From what we know, there were, there were at least 10 boarding and day schools here in Wisconsin, and it's estimated hundreds of Native children from Wisconsin were forced to attend out-of-state schools in addition. It's estimated that thousands of Native American kids in Wisconsin were forced to attend one of these schools, leaving generations of trauma inflicted on Native families and communities and a loss of language, culture, and identity. He urges that since the past cannot be erased, we cannot forget what happened. Reporting from WORT News, I'm Ben Kern. It's now 6.20 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. For more on Indigenous Peoples Day, we turn to Monona. Today, Monona City leaders and representatives of the Ho-Chunk Nation celebrated Indigenous Peoples Day by raising the Ho-Chunk Nation's flag. WORT contributor Tony Castaneda was on the scene and brings us this report. Hi, this is Tony Castaneda, and uh, in honor of National Indigenous Peoples Day, the city of Monona has raised the Ho-Chunk Nation flag. Here to uh, comment a little bit about that is Daniel Brown and Missy Tracy. They are both with the Ho-Chunk Gaming Madison, but they are also members of the Ho-Chunk Nation. Um, Daniel, I'll start with you first. What is the significance of the raising of this flag here in the city of Monona? Well, it's a it's a long time coming, actually. You know, it's an opportunity for the, the local community to recognize the indigenous people of this region. You know, we've been occupying this area for 13,000 years. Um, so this is just a, a really nice opportunity uh, for the community to, to recognize the fact that the Ho-Chunk have always been here, and we're still here. And Missy, um, what did it take to, uh, to get this flag raising? Uh, was, it, was this an easy endeavor? There's something that you have been working on for a long time? So for us, it's about education and awareness in what the Ho-Chunk referred to as Dejope, which is for the four 
primary lakes in Madison of the Yahara River chain. And I would like to think that this effort came about because of our community outreach and relationship building in the Dejope region with private sector, public sector. Um, I serve on several nonprofit boards and at the state level as well. So just about us being in the community and, again, educating the, the public about who the, the ancestral people uh, are of this area. What do you think of uh, statewide efforts to recognize the original peoples of this land here that we call Wisconsin? Daniel, I guess I'll, I'll ask you that. So there are efforts... And I don't know specifically what any state, you know, state-led efforts are, but I think it's important that we do recognize all the tribes. There are 11 recognized, federally recognized tribes in this state. What makes it significant for here in Monona, of course, is that we Ho-Chunk occupied this region. Each tribe occupied its own region of the state. But I think in general, it's, a, it's, you know, it's something that I think that would be appropriate for the state to recognize all the federally recognized tribes. Okay. I want to thank you both uh, for being on the radio. And... Um I am here with Christy Goforth. She's a city of Monona Alder, and she's also a member of the Ojibwe Onishinaabe tribe. Good, uh, good morning, uh, uh, Christy. Hi, Tony. Such a pleasure to be here with you today. Okay. So uh, as I spoke with David and, uh, and um, yeah, uh, Dan Brown and, uh, uh, and Missy earlier, what is the significance of the raising of this Ho-Chunk flag in the city of Monona here? Yes. Well, you know, if you think back to how much our people have lost, you know, and how much has been taken from us and how governments basically tried to eradicate us. And, and so imagine what that does for you as a person to be have government official acknowledge your presence and acknowledge that this was your land. It is monumental. Was it difficult for you to uh, to have this done? No, it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, for, I'm fortunate to a lot of these Ho-Chunk folks are my dearest friends. And so I was able to just call them and ask if they would like the ceremony. Is that something they would like to do? I, you know, I would like to encourage people if, if you ever want to do something like this or change a name, you know, that might be um, feel like a slur to you or something. You really need to go through the proper channels, which the first channel is contacting the Ho-Chunk Nation. Um, and get their blessing or get their, their permission to, to move forward. Um, and that's really important. That's just a, a basic respect. Now, Daniel Brown earlier uh, mentioned that uh, uh, the, the presence of the whole chunk in this area was, you know, for, you know, centuries, centuries yeah, yes. Um, and recently, though, there was a battle to name a, one of the bays here in Monona, which had an offensive name. Yeah. Uh, it was called uh, Squaw Bay at the yeah. time. Now, I understand that that name has just gone through and it's going to be changed. Could you talk about that? Yes, it did. It just was um, made official last week. Um, we got an email for, uh, to the city from, I believe it was the U.S. Geological Survey Service is who you get the, the notification from. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been in the works for a very long time. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a sensitive topic too. You know, I mean, I know as a Native woman, I, I did not like the word. And so, you know, in the end, I am glad to see it changed. Um, it does, it does feel, feel better to me. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it's one of these tricky things because also, you know, so if I can relay this to like my tribe. So my tribe is the Sioux tribe of Chippewa Indians. So Chippewa is 
kind of a, a bastardization of the word Ojibwa. So when white people, colonists came upon my tribal members on horseback, they would say, what tribe are you from? They'd say Ojibwa. And they translated that to say Chippewa. And so it's a kind of a funny thing because a lot of people in my tribe don't like the name Chippewa. We don't want that name. But it's such a monumental task to um, change and update all of your governmental documents. And so do you want to spend time doing that? Or do you want to spend time on the real work, which is really trying to support our people, prog progress, and make sure we're, you know, working well with other governments, you know, more traditional governments like the city of Monona. Um, so, yeah, kind of an interesting, an interesting kind of, you know, you have to choose your battles kind of thing. Okay, and what do you, th are there any future moves here? Uh, I know that a lot of the streets in the neighborhoods in Monona have what sounds like Native American names or origins. Is that is that true or, or what? Some of them are, but like Winnequa is, you know, that's kind of a, um, Winnequa, it's a Winnebago and Squaw mashup, right? So that's a tough one. And I mean, because that's, that's as well known as our city name, Monona. And our city name, Monona, you know, some would say, um, I've seen it on literature that it's Chippewa for beautiful. Um, apparently, it's actually, uh, it's a made up name. It's gibberish. So, you know, so I mean, it, it, if we open that box, right, it will never end. We will, you know, we could end up doing this forever. But what we'd, I think what a lot of Native people, and I don't want to speak for others, but I know the few that I've talked with about this, we'd rather just work on real issues, moving, moving things forward, making sure we have equality, making sure we have events like this where, you know, people are just acknowledged. What, um, what about the whole uh, notion of Indigenous Peoples Day uh, as today? which used to, well, uh, other people know it, say that it's uh, Columbus Day. Oh, my goodness. And I, I will tell you, um, as a child in school, I was taught to celebrate Columbus Day. I was not given the full context, right? No one in my class was. No one in my school was. You know, and I mean, the, the full context is so important. And I'm very curious to hear from my kids when they come home today what they learned. I believe, I'm hoping, well, I know my daughter said, we weren't taught that, Mom. And so I was like, oh, dear. you know. And so um, I'm hoping this year it will be different. I'll, I'll tell you, if there's something that the pandemic did for us and the whole Black Lives Matter movement, it, it really helped us awaken to all of these inequities and challenges that so many people of color face. Okay, I've been speaking with Christy Goforth. She's a, an elder person for the city of Monona and also a member of the Ojibwe tribe. Thank you very much, Christy. Thank you so much. I'm just honored to be here with you today, Tony. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. An immigrant rights group organizes a statewide strike. We remember the life and work of civil rights activist and comedian Dick Gregory. And feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. 
I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Nick Dodge. Thanks for joining us. Earlier today, Voces de la Frontera, a Milwaukee-based immigrant rights group, organized a statewide strike to demonstrate the importance of Wisconsin's Latinx and immigrant communities. For more on their Day Without Latinx and Immigrants action, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Armando Ibarra, an organizer and board member for, for Voces de la Frontera. So walk me through your action that you organized today at Voces, the the Day Without Immigrants and Latinx folks. What was the goal of this march and this action? Today's march was something that was organized really in response to what happened in D.C. here in the last couple of weeks with the opinion of the parliamentarians um, whose opinion was that, that immigration, comprehensive immigration reform, could not be a part of the reconciliation budget bill or the budget reconciliation. And so in terms of of continuing to organize and put pressure on Congress and on Vice President Harris and President Biden, Voces de la Frontera decided to call a day of action, a day without Latinx and immigrant workers in Wisconsin. So what happened was as soon as call to action was made by by Voces, then a series of meetings took place within the Voces organization. For those of you that don't know, Voces is a membership-run organization, a grassroots organization with thousands of members, Um, and it is statewide. So there's chapters, for example, in Madison, in Green Bay, in Racine, in uh, Waukesha, a new one forming in Fond du Lac, and also folks involved up in the Wisconsin Dells and other parts of the state. So this call to action was taken out to the different chapters and to this core group of called the Essential Workers' Rights Network, which is another group within Voices that formed during pandemic because of the needs that essential immigrant workers have. And so this call was taken out to them and um, discussed with the members, and the members voted to call this this day of action, this day without Latinx and immigrants here in the state of Wisconsin, which is also something that's being coordinated nationally. You know, Voices holds a, a very prominent position in the immigrants' rights movement nationally and um, has been working on issues associated with anti, anti-immigrant legislation here in Wisconsin and pro-immigration um, comprehensive immigration reform legislation at the national level for quite some time now. For I think I think Voices just celebrated their 25th year anniversary not too long ago. But that was the call to action: is to keep putting pressure on Congress and on Biden, President Biden and Vice President Harris, to move comprehensive immigration reform with a wide path to citizenship, what's known as citizenship for all in this budget reconciliation bill. Tell me more about the essential worker strike group that that Voces has worked to support and set up. Absolutely. Um, So the Essential Workers' Rights Network is a a group within Voces that um, came to existence in in the past year. In the height of the pandemic, um, Voces was getting calls from, from essential workers from across the state um, in different types of industries, um, workers that were getting sick and um, had no no recourse or no place to go, so they were calling bosses first in Milwaukee, 
some workers that began to organize around safety measures and on the job because folks were getting sick, right? And um, eventually calls came in from the Green Bay area as well from a group of, from these groups of workers in the meatpacking plants out there because, again, folks were getting sick and the majority of the folks in Green Bay were, were are immigrant workers. So from, from those contacts with community, this group slowly became to be. And now it's 75 people strong. So 75 essential workers from across the state that are part of this formalized group who's, uh, whose interest is in protecting the health and safety of workers and of those communities attached with those workers. So it really came out of a need and it really came because VOSIS is seen as a trusted organization in the state of Wisconsin. And it has, uh, VOSIS has put a lot of its resources behind um, standing this group up. And now this group is, is fully functioning as a, as a group that, that seeks to be educated more on not just workplace safety, but on how to make an impact in their localized communities. So with that in mind, what is the current state of essential workers in Wisconsin with an eye towards immigrant communities and the, and the Latinx folks who work in that essential workers category? Has the situation improved for them at all in the, in the last 18 months, or does it still remain not necessarily dire, but but strained, let's say. Yeah, I, I think the essential workers, all essential workers are still threatened by COVID-19, as all community members are as well. But there are some caveats in there for, for immigrant essential workers that don't that might not necessarily impact non-immigrant workers or, or workers who have a, an immigration status here, a proper immigration status in, in the U.S., right? And, you know, one of those things is, is vaccinations, right? And so vaccinations are, are, are available but are still seen with hesitancy by some essential workers because of the registry that comes with being vaccinated. So those barriers that are placed in front of workers, workers that are essential to the daily lived lives of all Wisconsinites are important to, to deal with. Um, another another thing that, that we do know is that, for example, when we look at, at essential worker jobs, you know, we know that nationally about three-fourths of all immigrant workers work in essential jobs. So 75% of the immigrant workforce in the U.S. has been classified as being part of an occupation within an industry that's been deemed essential during this pandemic. So... To say this and to articulate it in a manner, when we talk about immigration reform, we see that the immigrant worker is not only essential to, let's say, the Wisconsin economy in general, but the immigrant um, community is tied into almost every community in, um, in, in all 72 counties of Wisconsin. Um, and again, this is what Bosses in this call is trying to bring to light, bring it back to to the to the center of the conversation. The importance of of essential workers, their communities, and the how we're all integrated as uh, as Wisconsinites here in the state. 
You mentioned it there a minute ago, but talk to me more about the vaccine hesitancy amongst uh, Wisconsin's immigrant communities. Why is why does it exist, and what is Vosis doing to work to address that? Yeah, so that's a that's a real important, um, not just public policy question, but a community health question, right? Um, unvaccinated folks, regardless of, of of race, ethnicity, immigration status pose a, a community health risk to the entire to the entire state, right? Um, so we should be working on lessening any types of barriers that folks have to the vaccination because it's not only in the best interest of our immediate communities, but it's the only way that we're going to beat back this pandemic is the more folks that get vaccinated, um, the more that we will mitigate the spread of COVID-19 in the state and across the country as well. So having said that, there is hesitancy in in the community about being placed on some sort of list, right? Or some sort of registry that could potentially be used to track these folks down, right? And one thing that we do know is that most unauthorized people in the state and across the country are part of what are known as mixed status families. So in a mixed status family simply is a family that has different statuses and citizenship statuses within that immediate family. For example, there could be an unauthorized parent, an unauthorized child, an unauthorized person in the household, along with somebody that has a lawful immigrant status, including a person who has citizenship, right? Somebody that was born in the United States. So it gets really tricky and really complicated when we start talking about being identified as an unauthorized person and having the potential of being torn away from your family. Um, So that is one of the fears that you hear over and over. And what the state can do, and I think they might be doing this in some areas, is to not ask for any type of documentation in terms of folks that just want to be anonymously vaccinated. Armando, thank you so much for joining me today. But before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record about VOSA's action today, about the the efforts you're pushing for now? Anything at all you feel deserves airtime that we haven't had a chance to touch on here? Yes, of course. So it's been since 1986, since our last time we've had comprehensive immigration reform in our country. And this comprehensive immigration reform took place under under the presidency of Ronald Reagan. So since 1986, there's been a very limited way in folks that could continue to migrate legally to the U.S. But the impulses that have been creating migration in Latin American countries and other countries as well, other sending nations, have increased. So, for example, we know that there's an estimated 12 million undocumented people right now in our country. And this is 12 million people that are integrated into family structures, into communities all across the country. So right now, there's an opportunity to allow relief to these folks by passing some sort of of comprehensive immigration Uh, within the reconciliation budget, the budget reconciliation process. And the time is now. And it's not only good for those folks that are going to be uh, adjusting their status, but it's good for us all 
to be able to, to see that our neighbors are fully integrated into our communities and to be able to, to, to know that, that their families will remain intact because these impacts that families with one unauthorized person has are generational. And um, to, to have a more just and, and a more just society, this is one, one way to do it. Comprehensive immigration with full citizenship for all. And it can be done. And it's a promise that the Democrats ran on. And we'll see if they will keep that promise. And this action today was to remind those Democrats in power that they made a promise to the community. And it's time to come through. Armando, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Okay. Thank you so much, Jonah. It was a pleasure. Armando Ibarra is an organizer with Voces de la Frontera. This week on The Past Isn't Past, feature contributor Harry Richardson recalls the life and times of civil rights activist and comedian Dick Gregory. Tomorrow, October 12th, marks the birth of Dick Gregory, human rights activist, groundbreaking comedian, and vegetarian. At the height of his fame in the late 60s, Gregory gave up his career to join the civil rights movement. Gregory was born in 1932 in St. Louis, Missouri. He was raised by his mom, Lucille, a housemaid. His mostly absent father, Presley Gregory, was an abusive father and husband, as described in Gregory's book of 1964, N-Word, an autobiography with Robert Lipset. Gregory shined shoes, stole, did what he had to to help his family. He got a track and field scholarship to Southern Illinois University, SIU. Two years later, in 1954, he was drafted into the Army. Gregory got his start in comedy there, winning several talent shows. In 1956, he returned briefly to college, but dropped out because SIU didn't want me to study. They wanted me to run, he said. Gregory moved to Chicago and served as Master of Ceremonies, MC, at black nightclubs while keeping his day jobs as a car washer and postal worker. In late 1959, he rented out a local club and hosted a party for the Pan American Game Teams. It was a big success, and he was hired as the club's regular MC. Then in 1961, at the club, Hugh Hefner hired him for a one-night show at the Playboy Club that turned into several weeks and launched his career as a comedian. That first night, Gregory had a largely white crowd from the South. So he opened with, Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I understand there are a good many Southerners in the room tonight. I know the South very well. I spent 20 years there one night. Last time I was down South, I walked into this restaurant, and this white waitress came up to me and said, We don't serve colored people here. I said, That's all right. I don't eat colored people. Get me a whole fried chicken. Gregory was invited on to The Tonight Show shortly after that and demanded to sit and banter with host Jack Parr after doing his bit. He was the first African-American to do so. He gained fame and success paving the way for others. Then he began giving up paying jobs to focus on civil rights. In 1962, he went to Mississippi, invited by Medgar Evers, to support voting rights. He could have sent a check, but Gregory put in his time and money to help others, even though it meant sacrificing family time. Gregory was in the center of many of Milwaukee's biggest battles for equity. In 1964, 
he supported the one-day boycott of Milwaukee public school system. Organizing to protest school segregation, on May 18th, activists picketed 12 MPS schools and set up freedom schools. Gregory joined a picket outside the school administration building and spoke to students at the freedom schools. If we are successful with this revolution, people all over the world are going to recognize what we did to the greatest nation of the world without firing a shot, he said. He returned to MPS boycott a year later. In 1967, when the NAACP Youth Council and other groups began the 200 days of marches for open housing, Gregory returned. He joined marches led by Father Grappi. Gregory pledged to be here with you until it's over, one way or another. Gregory helped lead marches for more than two weeks and returned several times over the six-month struggle. He was arrested with a group for blocking police cars during a march October 8th. He was found guilty and fined the maximum, $100. In September 1968, Gregory, at that time a running candidate for president with the Peace and Freedom Party, came to Marquette and spoke on behalf of the Milwaukee 14, a group of anti-war activists who had seized and burned draft records from the downtown Selective Service Office. There's been nothing in America that equals what happened here in Milwaukee, Gregory said at a 2007 event marking the march's 40th anniversary. When the rest of the country saw what was happening in Milwaukee, it realized that, that equity was not an Alabama problem. It was not a Mississippi problem. This is an American problem. Gregory protested and fasted over a wide variety of causes, including against the war in Vietnam and for Native American rights and women's rights. He became a fervent vegetarian, eventually developing his own special Bahaman diet. But those are stories for another day. Sadly, Dick Gregory passed on from heart failure on August 19, 2017. He was 84. He left behind a proud legacy of struggle to his 10 children and to us. We also have a new documentary about him titled The One and Only Dick Gregory that premiered on July 4th. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this week's Monday Movie Review, feature contributor Harry Richardson checks out two movies with 60s roots, the new Muhammad Ali documentary by Ken Burns and No Time to Die, Daniel Craig's final Bond film. The price of freedom comes high. I have paid, but I am free. Muhammad Ali. That was clipped from Muhammad Ali, the new four-part documentary co-directed by Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David McMahon. It's available on Wisconsin PBS and runs seven plus hours. It's a pretty good summary of Ali's life and times and his importance for today. The doc has some informative talking heads, including Todd Boyd, University of Southern California Media Studies professor, Arthur Howard Bryant, 
Washington University history professor Gerald Early, Rutgers journalism professor Khadija White, MIT professor Craig White, MIT history professor Craig Wilder, and lefty sports writer David Zirin. There's only one actual boxer, though, Michael Bent. As in Blood Brothers, the newest Ali doc on Netflix about the relationship of Ali and Malcolm X, some of the most powerful statements were made by his family, two of his daughters, Hannah Ali and Rashida Ali, and his brother, Rahman. Novelist Walter Mosley says a lot in a few well-chosen words, like calling Fraser a force of nature who fought above himself, and Mosley's statement about rumble in the jungle, Ali's fight in Zaire with George Foreman. Ali made Africa real to many people, and Ali was the greatest man in the world. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar succinctly described the importance to Ali to fellow Muslims and the world. His ex-spouses also gave telling testimony, Khalila Ali and Veronica Porsche. There's also interesting comments from his last spouse, Yolanda Williams. The film deals straightforwardly with his serial womanizing and his verbal cruelty to opponents out of the ring and his physical cruelty in the ring, especially his almost mythic battles with Joe Fraser. Ali, near the end of his life, publicly apologized to Fraser, who understandably never forgave him. Muhammad Ali also regretted his treatment of women. He was remorseful about his falling out with Malcolm X over Malcolm's expulsion from the Nation of Islam. In 1972, Ali took the Hajj, the Islamic religious pilgrimage, and had a similar experience to Malcolm X, who had gone on the Hajj a decade before. In 1975, Warath Dean Muhammad took over the Nation of Islam after his father's death, changed the group into a more traditional Islamic religion. This suited Ali. One of the final scenes, which detailed Ali, who had Parkinson's, Trembling as he lit the Olympic torch was incredibly moving. The last scene is an African-American woman at a protest. She is wearing a black t-shirt with white lettering that says it all, Muhammad Ali. A well-done doc, well worth seeing. Now for something on a lighter note that also has roots in the 60s. If we don't do this, there will be nothing left to say. That was a clip from the trailer for No Time to Die, directed by Kerry Joe Fukunaga. This is Daniel Craig's last outing as Bond, and he goes out in style. There's a classic Bond, outstanding action, like the two action motorcycle car chase scenes. Two very good villains, Litzifer Sofen, Rami Malek, starting in the opening scene with a young Madeline. Later, there's the return of Blofield, the always watchable Christoph Waltz. Bond is enjoying retirement with Madeline, a fine Leah Seydoux, but she wants him to face his secrets. This doesn't go well, and Bond and Madeline are soon being chased by probable Spectre agents. Bond suspects Madeline and sends her packing. This all happens in the first ten minutes. Much of the rest of the movie is equally action-packed. We also get the return of some old favorites. M. the great Ralph Finnis as Bond's former boss, Ben Whislaw, as Q, the weapons expert, and Naomi Harris as Eve Moneypenny, M's aide. There's also a new agent, Nomi Lashana, who's supposed to replace Bond. We get a satisfying finish that points to new possibilities for the Bond franchise. A lot of fun for all the Bond fans out there. It just started playing in local theaters. 
See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters tonight were Ben Kern and Tony Castaneda. Special thanks to feature contributor Harry Richardson. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT and engineered tonight's show. I'm your host, Nick Dodge. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you listen. Up next is the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.